Good morning. I'm glad to be with you all this morning. I get to preach three times on Mother's Day. It's exciting. I sure hope somebody makes me brunch. (laughs) Well, for many of us, the Christian story tends to stop at Easter. Jesus crucified for our sins, resurrected, conquering death, inviting us into that story. And now we just kind of get about our business, and and that in our minds very often, whether we would admit it or not, is where things end. But the story doesn't stop there. As Tim reminded us last week as he kicked off this series, Jesus rose from the dead And he appeared physically to his disciples and to many others. And he encouraged them and he rebuked them, some of them. And he reinstated them and he loved them. And he gave them this great calling, what we call the Great Commission. And then he returned to his father. And the disciples were told to wait. And they waited, as Tim talked about last week, they waited with this mix of fear and hope for what was to come next. Because Jesus had said to, said to them over and over and over, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send you in my place an advocate, a counselor, the spirit of power and truth. And through him, You will do even more amazing things than I have done, he said. And the Holy Spirit blew into their lives on the day of Pentecost and it indwelled the disciples and other believers with God's powerful and overwhelming presence and the church formed. And it began to thrive in power and healing and authentic community. And our lives today, our very lives this morning, as we gather here in church to worship, flow out of that story. And the church exists today to continue the work of Jesus. To bring good news to the poor and to bind up the brokenhearted and to set free all kinds of prisoners who are trapped in all kinds of prisons. And this is the section of scripture that we're going to spend the next few weeks exploring. These 50 days between the resurrection and the day of Pentecost. And today we're going to focus just on the, the story and the implications of the ascension, which is, which is a, a word which describes that 40 days after Jesus was resurrected, in a mysterious and glorious way, He returned to his father after his work was done. And Luke writes a little bit about this at the end of his gospel, Luke chapter 24. He writes a more extensive version of this experience in Acts chapter 1 that Tim read last week. This morning, we're just going to look at what Luke writes at the end of his gospel, Luke chapter 24, starting with verse 50. When he, that's Jesus, had led them, his disciples, out to the vicinity of Bethany, He lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him. And as Tim described last week, they obeyed him. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. He who had descended so far out of such great love for this world. And he who had given up so much 
in the hopes of winning human beings back to the Trinity. He was now headed home. And I want to explore this concept with these couple questions in mind. Where is Jesus now? And what is he up to? Because as author Philip Yancey says, Easter and the ascension means Jesus must be loose out there somewhere. And he is loose out there somewhere. And he is active, doing a lot of things. But this morning I want to focus on on just this picture of the ascension and his ascending to his father and how this idea can have huge implications for the way that you and I see and understand and live our ordinary everyday lives. And the scriptures tell us, in picture and in metaphor, as they try to describe the indescribable, that the resurrected, ascended Jesus is now currently seated at the right hand of his father. Of course, probably not in a literal chair. Okay, this is, this is the, this is the scripture's attempt to paint a picture of the indescribable. And what it's trying to tell us is that Jesus is now in a position of authority and power. And one of the things that he's doing is he's fulfilling the role of the high priest on our behalf. And it's such a rich and beautiful image. And I'm going to unpack it just a little bit by giving a brief history. I know Ed has unpacked this in incredible ways through the years. But just I'm just going to do a little brief run through again to remind us what this picture means for us. So in the tabernacle of the Jewish house of or the Jewish house of worship, there was a place called the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And it was separated off from the rest of the worship experience by a thick curtain. And only the high priest could enter this place. And in this place was the Ark of the Covenant, which, for lack of better description, was basically a kind of a box that held the stone tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments, and the rod of Aaron and an urn of manna. And on top of this Ark was a mercy seat with an atonement cover, And this Holy of Holies was the place where the Israelites believed that God's presence dwelled. And the curtain that cordoned this Holy of Holies off from the rest of the temple represented the division between a holy God and sinful human beings. And on the Day of Atonement... Yom Kippur, Jewish holiday, the high priest would dress himself in special garments and he would wear the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on a special breastplate. He was representing the people of Israel. And the priest would carry their names into God's presence, into the Holy of Holies. He was acting on the people's behalf. And the priest underwent, before he entered the Holy of Holies, all of these ancient purification rituals. And when he was considered clean, he could begin his work, which involved two goats. And after the first goat was sacrificed, the priest would enter the Holy of Holies with the blood of that goat, and he would take it behind the curtain, and he would spread it on the atonement cover of the ark. And what he was doing symbolized the taking all of the sins of all of the people into the presence of God and then offering the prescribed sacrifice for their sins. His actions made atonement. They paid the price for the people's sins. And when he came out from the Holy of Holies, the priest would then place his hands on the head of a second goat, which was called the scapegoat. If you ever wonder where that word came from. 
And here he would confess all of the sins of the people and symbolically place them on the goat, which was then sent off into the wilderness as a sign of how far God had removed the sins of the people from them. And this was a beautiful ritual, uh, except if you were a goat, then it really wasn't that beautiful, I'm sure. But they were symbolic, these actions, and they were never complete. They had to be reenacted every year. So I'm sure there was always this sense of relief on the day, but always of angst because the people knew it was never fully done. Loose analogy, it's kind of like when you mow your grass this time of year. You have that brief moment of satisfaction. And then you go to bed. Is this not true? You go to bed and you wake up and you think, what happened? Whose idea was it to fertilize this grass? Very loose analogy. (laughs) But the New Testament book of Hebrews, which is this beautiful but somewhat cryptic book at times, tells us that this ancient sacrificial system was just a shadow of what was to come. It was just a foreshadowing of the fact that Jesus would be the ultimate and final high priest. He would live a perfect life. No need for him to undergo purification rituals before he did his work. And he would offer the sacrifice for our sins. And when he did, he, was, he would bear all of our names on his heart. He would represent all of us before his father. And the blood that was our atonement on that day was not the blood of a goat, but the blood of Jesus himself. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 9, starting with verse 11. He said, when Christ came as high priest, he did not enter God's presence, the Father's presence, by means of the blood of goats and calves. But he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. I I hope we can grasp this, we who have heard this message so many times. He was not only the high priest, but he was the perfect sacrifice at the same time. And when he had completed his work, the work of the day of atonement was now forever, once and for all, complete. And that is why at the time of his death, the Gospels record that the great curtain in the temple that separated the people from the Holy of Holies was torn in two. It was now forever unnecessary because sin, which had blocked people from the presence of God, was defeated. And the ascension... You see, drives this point home. When Jesus returned to his father and sat down, this image of sitting down is an image, a picture of finishedness. Not a word, but you get what I mean. Listen again to the writer of Hebrews, comparing the work of the human priest with the work of Jesus. Chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10. Day after day, every priest stands And performs his religious duties. Again and again he offers the same sacrifices. Which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. What did he do? He first ascended to his father. And then he sat down at the right hand of God. 
This is a little bit, again, very loose analogy here, but work with me. It's a little bit like when I sit down at the end of a day. (laughs) And my whole family knows this. When mom sits, she's done. It is finished. Don't ask me at 1030 at night to make you a quick sandwich. I am done. Don't tell me you need five empty egg cartons for a school project. Or don't bring me your stinky soccer uniform, say, at 9.30 at night and tell me you need it by tomorrow. I am done. The mother has taken her seat. Anybody else in here? Maybe you guys all get up and make a sandwich. I don't know. Obviously a loose analogy. But Jesus, the scriptures want us to know, sits down once and for all. Jesus paid the price for sin and for shame and for guilt and for all the ways that you and I fail and for all the ways that we act as if there were no God. The full price has been paid. There is nothing more to do. Jesus has been seated. And so here's my question. Do you believe this? Do you believe this is true? And I know most of us, in this room especially, would say, Oh, yes, yes, I know the right answer to that question, Alice, and it is yes. But let me really push you on this for a minute. Do you act, however, in your own life like you still need to be the scapegoat? carrying around all of your sins on your own head, weighted down every day by your own shame and guilt, never quite feeling that freedom that Christ died to give you? Do you find that you live the Christian life with this dogged sense of law and duty and fear of messing up? And do you behave and live You know, even though you wouldn't say this, though, as if you can somehow still make yourself more acceptable to God, like by coming to church or to serving or by serving a lot or by giving away money. Do you come here this morning still believing that following Jesus means working really hard to do a lot of religious things so that you can become, in your own head, a good Christian Two of the most dangerous words to hook together, I think, in the whole world. You see, it all boils down to one question. Do you trust that Jesus is enough? See, the blood has covered you. The scapegoat who bears our sins on his head has once and for all been sent into the wilderness. But when you and I hold on to our own guilt and we hold on to the idea that we can maybe somehow add to the completed work of Jesus with our own self-righteousness and all of our efforts and all of our striving, you see, it's really dangerous Because it not only hinders our ability to live the free and joyful life that that Christ died to give us, but it hinders our ability to serve God in love and freedom and power. 
God doesn't want us to serve him out of guilt or fear or the belief that by doing so, we can somehow make him like us more. That kind of mindset is death. Look at Hebrews 9, again, chapter or verse 14. Jesus is comparing, again, the power of the blood of Jesus to the power of the blood of goats. And he says in verse 14, How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. You see, the knowledge that Jesus has fully finished his sacrificial priestly work by sitting down next to the Father should free us up from sin and shame and guilt so that we, with clean consciences, because they've been covered by the blood of Jesus, so that we can continue to do the work that Jesus started and calls us to do. He's seated. You're covered. Now get to work. Sharing the good news with the poor, binding up the brokenhearted, setting the prisoner free. Not because you earn his favor by doing those things, but because you're so undone by gratitude. But there's more that our high priest still does today. Again, I'm back in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 24. I encourage you to spend some time in the book of Hebrews this week. um, Yeah, chapter 9, verse 24. This is what the writer says. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. When he ascended into the presence of his father, he entered heaven itself now to appear For us in God's presence. Now to appear for us in the presence of God. Did you know that? Jesus, the resurrected, alive Jesus, now lives in the full presence of our Father on our behalf. And he does many things. But here's the one I want to point out to you this morning. Again, the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. Verse 23, now there have been many of those priests, human priests, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Listen to this. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus lives now in the presence of the Father, interceding for you. What if prayer is not all up to us? What if your adequacy or inadequacy at prayer has very little to do with whether or not your Father hears the cries of your heart? What if all the time you and I spend trying to assess how we're doing with prayer was mostly a waste of time because it got our eyes off of Christ and puts our eyes on our own selves, which I don't know about you in your life, but for me is mostly a disaster. (laughs) See, I've been in the church long enough to know that when the topic of prayer comes up, Most people express great feelings of inadequacy or they just hang their heads 
in guilt. We know we ought to pray. We try to pray. But if we're honest, most of us are failures in our own minds. And then there are these wonderful people who love to walk around and tell us all that we're not praying right. We're not, we don't have the right method. For instance, I told this story before, but it's especially appropriate right now this morning. My son's violin teacher, uh, when Will was in fifth grade, I would say he broke his thumb playing baseball. We went in for violin lesson and she, she said, mom, mom, come over here. I hate that when people do that. Mom, mom, come over here. And she said, I want you to know that for all of my children's lives, I have been praying a secret prayer. And never once have they been sick. Never once have they had a broken bone. Never once have they been ill or missed a day's work. And they're in their 50s. And I looked at her and said, so what you're insinuating is that he broke his thumb because I did not pray the right secret prayer. And she said, (laughs) he's not with her anymore. (laughs) And last night, as I was about to retire so I could have a rested morning, my son came home from a open house announcing that he had a broken wrist. Just holding it out like this. So obviously I still don't have the secret prayer because uh, he was at the ER late last night. So uh, there is every opportunity in the world, it feels like, in the church to feel like a failure at prayer. And feeling like a failure at something is very non-motivating. There's a pastor uh, named Marva Dawn who wrote a book about being in the ministry And she wrote this little quick story that really stopped me dead in my tracks when I read it. She said, one afternoon, I confessed to Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson is this um, long-standing, deep and wise Presbyterian pastor. She confessed to him that her prayer life was really horrible or even non-existent. And she said, his response took my breath away. It doesn't matter, he said. Christ prays for you. See, before the thought even hits your mind, I should pray. Jesus is already praying on your behalf. When you think to yourself, I don't even know what to pray. I don't even know what words to say. Jesus is already praying for you. When you're in the surgery waiting room and your loved one is in there under anesthesia or you're in the doctor's office and you're waiting for a diagnosis that could change your life forever and cold fear has gripped your heart so that you can't even verbalize a thought, not to mention a prayer. Jesus has already been praying for you. You see, it's not even remotely all up to you. And I believe this truth, rather than making us lackadaisical about prayer, can actually set us free to pursue prayer, this conversational relationship with God, with confidence and joy and freedom. Because the only way to fail at prayer, really, is just to never pray. The ascended Jesus bears our names and our prayers into the presence of the Father on our behalf day and night. And this fact should make us bold in prayer, confident that through Christ we are heard. And that is why the writer of Hebrews again says in chapter 4, For we do not have a high priest, 
who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. You see, Jesus knows your life. He gets your life. But we have one who's been tempted in every way. He was uh, just as we are, yet he was without sin. And this high priest not only paid the sacrifice for us, but he now intercedes on our behalf. So let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, not in our own self, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You and I should love this story of the ascension as much as we love the story of the resurrection. God the Son covered the eternal atonement seat once and for all with his blood, and then he returned to heaven, and he seated himself at the right hand of God the Father to show to us, to remind us that his sacrificial work is done. There need be no further sacrifice for sin. There cannot be any further sacrifice for sin. Will you live as if that was true? And God the Son now lives in the real Holy of Holies as the eternal high priest. And he intercedes for us day and night. Did you know he prays over you while you sleep? And for some of us, he can't wait until we go to sleep. So we can just be quiet for a minute and let him get his prayers in. And our adequacy or inadequacy at prayer is mostly irrelevant. He simply asks that we have enough faith to join him in the work he's already doing. Will you pray as if that were true? I pray you'll ponder those questions in your heart this week. Amen. Father, thank you so much for this part of the scriptures that sometimes we neglect, that we don't quite understand, that sometimes feel like they're irrelevant to our daily lives. Would you help us this morning to see afresh how the fact that your son, after his work here was done, returned into your full presence and is seated right now, to remind us that there can be no further sacrifice for sin. And yet he's also still at work on our behalf, praying day and night, interceding for us. May we trust in his good and perfect work. Amen.